So an alien anthropologist comes to planet Earth in the year 2021. And this is not the setup to a joke. It's actually an experiment, like a mental exercise to think about observing some facets of human society from an objective distance, assuming you don't really know much before you get here. Imagine this alien anthropologist comes to the planet in the year 2021, and their job is to observe and ask questions and poke around on how we live and structure society and what it's like to be human, and then they're gonna take it back to their planet and report on everything. And in this report, imagine there's a sentence, and the sentence begins, the Christians are the ones who and then it goes on to say stuff about the Christians. Like this alien has observed that there are these different groups of humans. And one of the big groups of humans is the Christians. And they've observed some of what the Christians do and they've heard the way other people perceive the Christians. And in their report, there's a sentence that begins. The Christians are the ones who, I wonder what the rest of that sentence would say. As you, you think about it, you, you might come up with lots of things. You might come up with some really beautiful things and some not so beautiful things. In our gatherings this week, I've actually been throwing that question out to the room and asking people to respond. And I've heard things like, the Christians are the ones who love, and the Christians are the ones who are hopeful. I've heard things like, the Christians can be really cruel sometimes, or the Christians are the ones who are always fighting about what they believe. Uh, like a really wide spectrum that's come out in the room, and maybe you're thinking of a wide spectrum of observations too. Now, the, re the reason I'm asking this actually is to help us appreciate some of the difference between the world we live in today and then the world where this movement called Christianity emerged. Because I think if the alien didn't show up in the year 2021, but rather like in the year 85 AD, just a few decades after the life of Jesus, when the church wasn't this big global phenomenon, it was mostly house churches in cities in the Mediterranean world. And, but they, they found out that there were these Christians, these people, I think if, if they did that back then, the end of the sentence would say things like, the Christians are the ones who follow this rabbi named Jesus. Or the Christians are the ones who are the atheists, curiously. Um, I could go on and on about that, but it seems that in the first and second centuries, that whatever had happened in Christ and whatever it did to people and however they understood it, it so radically redefined these people's understandings of how to worship God or how to know God that their way of worshiping or knowing God, it, it was so categorically different than the pagan world around them that most people didn't recognize it as knowing God at all. In fact, the Christians were actually accused of being atheists in the ancient world. So they might've said they're the atheists. They might've said the Christians are the ones who make sure everybody has what they need. Like they actually show up and take care of each other. But the other thing that I think would have come out pretty quickly in this report, if it had been written about the Christians 2000 years ago, is that the Christians are the ones who come together every week for a strange, mysterious meal. Now, the meal I'm talking about is the one that we call Eucharist or the Lord's Supper or communion. And depending on your background and religion or Christianity, it might've been a big part of your practice, a regular part of your practice, or something that feels pretty foreign to you. Um, but it clearly was like a centerpiece of the way that these early followers of Jesus practiced their life. Not so much a highly ritualized and liturgical form of the Eucharist, but an actual, mysterious, sacred, shared meal. Now, I, I know for me, uh, when I think about the Eucharist or Lord's Supper or Communion, my relationship to it begins early in life because I grew up in churches where we received it or we practiced it every week. And the churches I grew up in, we, you know, we passed these plates uh, in the aisles or the pews where we sat. So it kind of go by you. And in the middle, there were these little cardboard Tic Tacs. You know what I mean? <laughs> 
they were actually like unleavened bread, but it was like the size of a Tic Tac and it didn't taste like anything. And then there was those little kind of individual plastic cups that had grape juice in them. And when I was very young, I would pass the plate because our church practiced uh, this in a way that if you hadn't been baptized yet, you wouldn't receive communion. And I didn't get baptized until I was a little bit older than when, when I first started noticing this thing going by, right? And then when I observed what was happening around me, what I, what I seemed to pick up is that this ritual, this thing that we do when we're together, that the way that you approach it, the way that you prepare yourself for it is you kind of hang your head, kind of bow down and you get quiet and, and you think about all the bad that you've done in the world and all the ways that you're not worthy of this meal. There's a real sort of sober-minded reckoning going on there. Um, now, before I go where I'm really gonna go with all of this today, let me just call out for a moment. I don't think that that's all bad. In fact, right now in the world and even in the church, I think we're perhaps so concerned about the shame that has been heaped on top of people in the name of God all the ways that, um, that that has been manipulated to hurt people, that we're also afraid of talking about conviction. And I, I think that's really unfortunate because shame and conviction are two very different things. Uh, but without conviction, it's really hard to grow up. I mean, without just naming, without owning, without inviting God to poke around in your life and help you discover the places where you're not living up to who you are, it's really hard to grow up. And it's not just that individuals have a hard time growing up if we don't name our sin. Um, but it's that the world suffers when we have a hard time naming our sin. And people who are getting better at owning their failure points and their capacity for um, selfishness and greed or deception or bigotry or injustice, the, the more comfortable we are with naming that truth about ourselves, the better the world gets. And like I said, the, the less comfortable we are with it, the worse our world gets. And we have some things to name, don't we? I mean, for example, uh, this past weekend was Juneteenth, which is the commemoration of the day when news finally reached enslaved people, enslaved African-Americans in Galveston, Texas in the 1860s, which reminds us that it's not ancient history, but modern history in recent memory that we in the United States had to work out the idea that it's not okay to own human beings. I mean, it's not ancient history, it's modern history, it's recent memory that we had to work out the idea that it's not okay to enslave human beings. And I, I know a lot of us perhaps are more comfortable seeing the sin in the system than we are in ourselves, but the way we end up with a system that does that kind of thing is because the system is made up of and, and built by people who have a capacity for egregious failure, for bias, bigotry, for grasping at power, uh, for sin. So I think it'd be really like, okay, if one of the ways that we approach the table of Jesus is to remember that. In fact, one of the ways that the scripture that the New Testament understands the death of Jesus, which is the thing that's named in the Eucharistic meal, right? With the body broken and the bloodshed. One of the ways that scripture interprets the death of Jesus is with this big and frankly sort of mysterious idea that somehow in that moment with Jesus on the cross, all of human sin and failure was gathered up into a singularity and directed at him. Um, it's kind of right down the middle of orthodox interpretations of how scripture thinks about that moment. So it makes sense that we would think about our failure points when we come there. However, and, and this is where I'm really trying to go today, the paradox is that if the way that you approach the table, if the way that, that we approach the sacrament that we call communion or the Eucharist, if the way that we come to that table 
leaves us feeling um, like we can't identify with the gift at that table because there's so much distance between us and that gift, because there's so much distance between us and who Jesus was and how he lived, because there's so much distance between us and God. If the way that we approach that table just indicts us and leaves us feeling all that distance and something has gone wrong because something else is supposed to happen when we come to the table. And to, to try to make the case for what I think is supposed to happen when we come to the table, let me take you to a text in the New Testament where we get our instructions uh, for this meal. I mean, there's a few places you can do this in the New Testament, but one of the places where the, the New Testament actually teaches on the nature of the sacrament that we call Eucharist or communion or the Lord's Supper is 1 Corinthians 11. Let me, let me read it with you. I'll tell you how I used to read it, and then I'll tell you how I read it today. This is Paul writing to a church, and he says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Now, by the way, communion or the Eucharist in this time was celebrated as an actual meal. And so people from every strata of society, from the whole spectrum of society, the rich and the poor, the powerful and the disempowered, all found themselves at the same table. But apparently what was happening is the rich were bringing their own, their own food, their own drink. They were enjoying it and leaving behind their less well-resourced sisters and brothers so that they were stuffed and drunk and their sisters and brothers were hungry and thirsty. And he says, uh, don't you have homes to eat and drink in yourself? Don't, do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, and here's, here's where it gets magical. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. But it begs the question, what is an unworthy manner? And he clarifies it next. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup for those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. So here's how I used to read that. It's like, okay, well, Jesus is here in the bread and the cup and Jesus is perfect and I'm not. And so if I come to this meal feeling um, really good about myself and like really proud of myself, and then I don't realize just how far the gap is between me and Jesus, because Jesus is here and he's perfect and I'm not, if I don't discern that gap, then I'm coming unworthily. And it's like dangerous to come to the table that way. But the problem with that is twofold. First of all, why did Paul write this part of the letter? He wrote this part of the letter very specifically because some of the people at the table were ignoring other people at the table. That their grave error was that a person was coming to this meal ignoring a sister or a brother who was also at them at the table, with them at the table, which then brings to mind that when Paul in his letters talks about the body of Christ, he's almost always talking about the mystery that God wants to live God's life among the members of the church, among the human race, among sisters and brothers, not just in Jesus, but in all of us. In other words, for Paul, the way that you can wreck the sacrament, the way that you can be unworthy of the sacrament, is to come to this table not recognizing that we, in our flesh and blood, are the sacrament, that we are the body of Christ. 
So like, it's one thing to have a sober reckoning with our failure points. That can be really useful. It's one thing to name our sin. It's another thing to identify with it and to say, that, well, that's all we are. Rather than to come to this table and recognize that at this table, we are becoming the body of Christ. And what happens there is if you recognize that us, broken, frail, fragile, sinful, that we are becoming the body of Christ, it starts to reframe the way that we think about our lives and our relationships. And the places perhaps where we least expected to find God, we might most hunt for the mystery of God meeting us there, which is the point of a sacrament, that the mystery of God meets us in these places. I don't know about you, I know for me, um, I go through this cycle over and over again where I have an area in my life where I feel like I'm failing, not succeeding, not living up to my values, not living up to who I am. And then in that area of my life, I, it gets kind of darkened because of that. And I don't imagine much light there. And I don't imagine much of God there. And of course, the worst part is over time, those accumulate, and I pretty soon don't imagine that my life is a place where I would look for God. But if I, if I can use this whole big idea that, that, that we are becoming the body of Christ in the very place where we also name our failures and sins, then it could be the case that these failure points, these dark corners of my life are the place where I actually most expect to find the mystery of God, breaking through the cracks, the mystery showing up in my life. And it's not just my personal life, it's also the space that exists between me and my sisters and brothers, because the space between me and other people is where there is so much conflict, where things are so fraught sometimes, where things can feel so broken. But the text says that we are becoming the body of Christ, which suggests that the space between you and me, the space between you and your sister or your brother, the space between you and your enemy is the place where you might look for God. That's the power and the mystery of a sacrament like the Eucharist, that, that when we come to the sacrament, we also discover that we are becoming the sacrament, that the table is a place where we expect the mystery of God to meet us, but that the, the great gift of the table is it reminds us that we, that you and me, that all of us in flesh and blood are the place where we expect God to meet us. There's um, uh, a, a person who's written a book named Vincent Pizzuto. The book is called Contemplating Christ. And it's about praying through the gospel texts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and, and meeting God through that reflection. And he, he wrote this in the book and it just, it struck me so deeply. This is kind of what I'm trying to say. He says, the sacraments, like the Eucharist, bring us into deeper connection with those who celebrate what it means to be Christ's body. Like a continual heartbeat of the church, the liturgy is the place where the blood cells dispersed throughout the body are joined together in the chamber of the heart where they are rejuvenated and given new life breath before being sent out again to vivify the whole body of Christ. It is here that the hidden mystery of our deepest identity as other Christs is celebrated and fully realized. So Augustine insists, and by the way, Augustine was a North African bishop in the church in the fourth and fifth century AD uh, in what is modern day Algeria. Augustine writes and says, if therefore you wanna understand the body of Christ, Listen to the apostle, and now he's talking about Paul in 1 Corinthians, which is what I read to you earlier. Listen to the apostle telling the faithful, you are the body of Christ and its members. That's from 1 Corinthians 12. So if you who are the body of Christ and its members, it is your own mystery that has been placed on the Lord's table. What you are receiving is your own mystery. You say amen to what you are, and when you say that, you affirm what you are. You hear the body of Christ and you reply, amen. Be a member of the body of Christ in order to make that amen true. 
And so our heart as a community to come to the Eucharistic table is that we would celebrate the body of Christ in the bread and the cup and that when somebody looks you in the eye and says the body of Christ broken for you or the blood of Christ shed for you and you say amen, you can also be saying amen to that declaration over us. Like say yes, we are becoming the body of Christ. We are being forged into a sacrament which is a place where the mystery of God promises to meet us and a sacrament is a gift from God to the world. Uh, if you're not able to be part of our gatherings, maybe you don't have a place to show up and receive the Eucharist yourself right now. Uh, I would just say, um, find some people you love and have a great meal and put food on the table and pour the wine. And as you do so, may you be saying yes, that this too is the body of Christ, this table, this fellowship. Um, that anybody who wants to be at the table with Jesus gets to be at the table with Jesus. That none of our failures or frailties somehow make us ineligible for this promise. But perhaps precisely where we find our failures and our, our frailties, we're being invited to look for God. And whether they exist within our personal lives or in the spaces between us, God is promising to meet us there. So may you discern the body of Christ. And whether it's uh, in a church service at a table that we call the Eucharist, or whether it's every meal that you share with those you love. As you discern the body of Christ, may you know it not just in the food and the drink that provide for your body, but may you know it in the space between you and your sisters and brothers, and even in your own flesh and blood. And may grace and peace be with you.